the overall title for our look at the Lord's long answer to the first challenge question out of a total of four we'll be looking at for quite some weeks to come. This challenge question that was posed to him regarding his authority, the source of his authority, on what day of the Passion Week? Tuesday of the Passion Week. That question was posed by the religious establishment, the overall title for his response to those religious rulers is judgment for rejection. From Matthew 21, verse 24, all the way through to Matthew 22, verse 14, Jesus was predicting through three parables that judgment would come upon corporate Israel under the leadership of the religious rulers because of their rejection not only of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, but also the rejection of God the Father, which he demonstrated to them through the parable of the two sons, and their rejection of himself, God the Son, which he demonstrated to them last week in the parable of the wicked vine dressers, and also their rejection of the final witness of the triune God, their rejection of God the Holy Spirit, which he is going to demonstrate to them in our lesson today through the parable of the wedding banquet for the king's son. Because they rejected all three members of the triune Godhead, judgment would come. And that's why we call this judgment for rejection, and this is part two. Technically, you could say it's part three because we've spent three weeks on it, but in your books, it's part two. It had been rather amazing, really, to find that the influential delegation sent from the Sanhedrin Council of Israel had stuck around to listen to Jesus speak the first parable, the parable of the two sons, after they had appeared so foolishly incompetent before the public, you know, the massive Passover crowds there, when they had answered his counter-question about John the Baptist with their expedient, remember this, we don't know answer. They had looked really foolish when they said, well, we don't know where John the Baptist gets his authority. We just don't know. And yet they stuck around for him to then give to them that first parable, the parable of the two sons. And, um, and, and in that parable, he really basically indirectly told them that they were the first son, the first son who said he would do the Father's will, but never did do the will of God the Father. And then he had gone on to say in verse 31 that publicans and harlots would go into the kingdom before them. And yet, they still stood around. I guess they were gluttons for punishment because they're still standing there in utter, you know, impotence as he goes on to speak the third parable. Or, I should, what is it, the second parable. This, the parable about the wicked vine dressers where he again shows them indirectly that the wicked vine dressers who mistreated all the servants that were sent to them to collect the rent for the vineyard they mistreated them, and then who did they kill? When the vine owner sent his son, they even killed the son. Well, they got it. You know, they didn't initially get it, and they actually passed sentence on themselves in verse 41 when he said, well, what should the Lord of the vineyard do when he comes and sees that they've killed his son? They said he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen. So they passed sentence on themselves. They didn't get it yet that they were the vine dressers when they said that. But by the time he finished the parable, where he again made them look like fools, because he said, haven't you ever read in the scriptures 
that it was foreknown that you builders would reject the stone, the Messiah, and you have rejected him, but he's going to rise from the dead and become the chief cornerstone of the church. So he made them look like fools, like, you know, saying, even though you're rejecting me and you have plans to kill me, all of this was predicted in the scriptures. They still stand around, totally speechless, as he now speaks to them. The third parable, the parable of the uh, wedding banquet, the king's wedding banquet for his son. So after hearing all this, instead of taking a deep, introspective look into their own hearts and admitting the truth about their motives for hating him so much that they wanted to kill him, and instead of admitting that they love the praise of men and their positions and their power more than they really loved God, and that they wanted to have things their way more than they wanted to have things God's way, you know, more than they wanted to submit to the Father's will and truly work for his glory in his vineyard. And rather than falling on the stone, Christ, the one they were stumbling over, um, and repenting in brokenness for their sins, which he basically invites them to do in the first part of verse 44, instead of falling on the stone in broken, with a broken and contrite heart and asking him for his forgiveness and repenting of their sins, what do they want to do instead of all that? Instead, they wanted to do exactly what the wicked vine dressers of the second parable did. They wanted to catch him, Look at verse 46. They wanted to lay hands on him. They wanted to catch him and kill him. But because they still feared the masses of the Passover pilgrims, who were you know, literally millions of people in, in Jerusalem at that time, uh, and, and they did perceive Jesus to be a prophet, um, and because the religious rulers still feared them, they stood there glued in place as he began to speak a third parable. And in this third parable, he took matters one step further. Remember, in the first parable of the two sons, he had judged them, the religious leaders, for, being, for having a false profession of faith, for being all talk and no walk. Well, then, and then he had also said that publicans and harlots would go into the kingdom of God before them. Well, that was still sort of giving them a, a chance, a second chance to enter into the kingdom behind you know, he said the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom before you, but come on, you can still come in behind them. Well, in the second parable, he had judged them, he went a step further, not just for their false profession of faith, but he judged them for their murderous hearts in killing the prophets and even the vineyard owner's own son. And yet, in the first part of verse 44, he still invited them into the kingdom by saying, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. And the way I like to read that, you can read it two ways, and maybe the Holy Spirit intended it that way. But the way I like to read it is that you could still fall on the stone, Jesus Christ, with a broken heart, and it wasn't too late to therefore enter into the kingdom. But in this last parable, which we find in Matthew 22, Jesus went a step further and judged them for their willful unbelief and their rejection of the final call, the final call to salvation through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Actually, the parable in itself is a warning to Israel to repent, 
But in the parable, we will find that unlike the first two parables, there is no second chance. Those who rejected the invitation to his banquet are destroyed. Their city, we'll see as we read it, their city, which speaks of Jerusalem, is burned up. And uh, the invitation to the kingdom of God, which is illustrated by the wedding banquet itself. The wedding banquet is a picture of the kingdom of God, just like the vineyard was a picture of the kingdom. Now it's a wedding banquet. So we find that the invitation to the kingdom is extended to others. And who would that be? Gentiles, exactly. And the guest, we'll see at the end of this parable, the guest who thought that he could get into the kingdom by his own works of righteousness with his own garment, he is cast into the outer darkness of hell itself. So there is no second chance given in this parable. Now, before we look at the text, which we do find in verses 1 to 14, Matthew 22, let me say that Jesus now used, as he did on a number of occasions, he used the analogy of a wedding feast. So instead of the kingdom of God being symbolized by that vineyard, which we saw in the first two parables, now it is a wedding banquet. Instead of a father with two sons or a vineyard owner with only one son, this parable now speaks of a king who has at least one son, and he's, we would say, only one son, because we know the son speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is preparing a wedding feast for his son because his son is going to get married, right? That's why you have a wedding feast. The son's going to get married. Now, the Lord used Eastern wedding customs that would be very familiar to his Jewish listeners. They were familiar with vineyards, and they were very familiar with wedding customs back in their day. Now, a wedding feast, the feast after the wedding, was just about inseparable from the wedding itself. It involved a series of meals. I mean, they would have to, the family would come and they would all stay in the, in the father of the groom's home or in other family members' home. And the wedding feast would go on for days, depending on the wealth of the bridegroom's father. Now, back in those days, it was the bridegroom's family that paid for the wedding and all, all the, the food. I like that because I've got two daughters and only one son, so you know. <laughs> now we have it reversed, at least in this culture, where it's the bride bride's family that pays for the wedding and does all that. But in Jewish custom, it was the bridegroom's father. And depending on how wealthy the uh, bridegroom's father was, that would indicate how long the banquet would go on. So um, the wealthier he was, the longer the wedding festivities would extend. And a royal wedding feast, such as the one used in this parable, one that was prepared by a king for his son, the prince, would be a celebration to top all celebrations. It would be such a significant and such a magnificent event that the Lord's listeners would well understand that it would be an honor and a privilege to be extended an invitation to such a glorious occasion. You know, if you got an invitation in the, in the mail to go to the king's wedding and banquet, which might last for weeks, you would be so excited. You know, you'd be running around telling, I got an invitation. Did you get one? No, I was like, oh, and I must, <laughs> I must not count. But it was almost inconceivable 
to, for a person to refuse this invitation. However, as the parable goes, that's exactly what Israel, as a nation who followed her willfully unbelieving religious rulers, that's exactly what she did. She refused the king's invitation to the wedding and the wedding banquet he was preparing for his son. Now, another custom of Near East weddings that we need to understand as we look at this parable is that there were generally two invitations extended to the invited guests. At the time of the engagement or the betrothal, an announcement was sent forth. Now, this would be, of course, through servants by foot. They didn't have any postage system in those days. So they'd send out the servants. The servants would go to all the family and friends of the betrothed couple, informing them of the forthcoming wedding and the wedding banquet, of course, that would follow. Now, usually a betrothal, betrothal period, an engagement period, was generally around a year long. Um, but that would vary. It, it depended on how long it took for the bridegroom to build a dwelling place in his father's house for his bride. And I know this is all, you know, makes you think of other things, right? About the Lord. What is he doing right now in heaven? He's preparing for his bride a dwelling place. Well, at this year, say, get the invitation as soon as the couple was engaged. They get the invitation to come to the wedding. It, it's going to be like a, maybe a year off, but you, you are going to be invited. And this gave all the invited guests ample time, plenty of time, to prepare themselves to attend the wedding banquet. Now, the parable, you need to understand this. The parable in Matthew 22 begins with the second invitation that would go out to all the previously invited guests, telling them that now the time has come. You know, it's at hand. The date has been set. Everything is prepared and ready. Here's the date. You are now, you know, expected to, to come. And the guests, you remember, have had about a year to prepare their schedules and their activities and their doctor appointments and everything else. Uh, they were expected to attend. In the Lord's spiritual symbolism of this parable, those who were invited refer to the nation of Israel, the nation with which God, who is pictured by the king, had made a covenant. He had made a covenant with Israel, promising them a Messiah who would come and institute the kingdom of righteousness and peace in which they were greatly privileged to have a part. The Jewish people have always believed, in fact, it's even in their Talmudic literature, that the Messiah's appearance, when he came, his appearance would be accompanied by a great banquet, great feast. And there would have been a great banquet in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, right then and there, you know, when Jesus came the first time, if Israel had accepted him as her king, but because she didn't accept him as her king, there was no banquet, right? Because it had to be postponed until a time when she would accept him. So, um, because she, uh, and, and anyway, I've got off track. Anyway, there will still be a banquet, the son of the king will be married. He will marry now, who? The church, 
the wedding will take place in heaven. After we are raptured, we'll go and the marriage ceremony will take place in heaven. We will be in what the Jews called the chuppah. I always like to say chuppah <laughs> because the, the bride and the groom would go into this little covered tent for seven days. And they would be in there, you know, consummating the marriage. <laughs> and when they came out after seven days, then would be the great wedding feast. Now, I believe that the wedding feast, because the bridegroom here, the bridegroom's father is so incredibly wealthy, he is God, that the feast will take place, the marriage supper of the Lamb, during the entire millennial kingdom, 1,000 years. How's that for a banquet? Other commentaries agree with me on that, but, you know, some say, no, it'll be up in heaven. I think it'll be down here. And the invited guests, the guests of that wedding feast will be who? Believing Israel. All right, have I thoroughly confused you? you you're looking pretty good. You're all looking like you're with me. Okay, that's where we're going with this parable. By the way, again, as, um, as with the quote from Psalm 118, you know about the stone that the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone, which tells us that even though they stumbled over the stone and rejected him, as scripture said, yet he became the headstone, the foundation stone, the chief cornerstone of the church, which means that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Again, we see here in this third parable, the continuing saga of the vineyard owner's only son, only begotten son, the heir remember that in verse 38, who was caught and cast out of the city and slain. We see the continuing saga of him. He wasn't just slain and that was the end of it. He became the chief cornerstone. He was not only the stone that the builders rejected who became that chief cornerstone, but he is now, we find in this third parable, he is now the king's son who is about to marry his beloved bride in his father's great palace. You see how he's taken, I mean, only God, who can see everything from his perspective, could take these three parables and tell what went on in history past with Israel killing all her prophets, you know, and then sending Jesus the Son and they kill him, because they haven't even killed him yet on Tuesday. And then he goes on to tell about the apostles in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how they would go to Israel and continue to try to bid her to the, the wedding banquet, and yet she would reject them, and then he would go on. The Spirit would use the apostles to speak to the Gentiles. I mean, the whole history of everything is given in these three parables. And anyway, here we see that the king's son is alive, very much alive, because he's about to get married. He may have been rejected and killed, but he is obviously very much alive in this last parable. And very interestingly, the gracious father, the king, God, still invites the people of Israel to come to the banquet he's hosting for his son's wedding in spite of everything that they had done to his son. Because what had they done in the previous parable? They killed his son, and yet we find in this third parable the king in his great mercy and grace is still inviting Israel to come to the wedding after they killed his son. So that's enough introduction, isn't it? Let's get into the parable. Let's read the parable. Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, but I'm going to stop at verse uh, 10, and then I'll continue later on in the lesson and read 11 through 14. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, 
The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden. See, they were already bidden. He calls them, this is the second invitation. He calls them that were bidden to the wedding and what? What's it say? They would not come. So verse 4, again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. A king is beseeching them, begging them, yet he's giving a command, Come. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. That is a prediction of what happened to Israel in 70 A.D. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. All right, we'll stop right there for now. Okay, we find that the Lord's third parable here picks up with the king, God, sending forth his servants, such as John the Baptist and John's disciples, Actually, to now call all the pre-invited guests, the one who had gotten their invitation, you know, like a year earlier, which really would be longer than that. Back in the Old Testament days, they got their first invitation um, to attend the banquet that he had prepared for his son, who, of course, is Jesus. Now, this was the invitation that would announce the date of the wedding, you know, technically speaking, the date. And what did John come saying to Israel? You know, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Basically saying, everything is ready. Everything is ready. Come now. You've already said you would come. You see, that this is the second part of what was commonly a two-part, just a two-part invitation. Notice the words, sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Now, you don't see this in English, but the two words call and bidden are exactly the same Greek word. Same Greek word. So really what it is saying here is uh, call them that were called. They've already been called. Israel's already been asked to attend. And like the first son, what did she said? I go, sir. Yes, I got the invitation. I will definitely be there. But what happened? She never went. She refused as we were, you know, she would not come. She's like that first son, right? See how the parables all tie together? Hope you follow me. <laughs> but in other words, he's saying, call them that were already called or bid them that were already bidden. So this is the second part of the invitation. There may have been some when they got that first invitation who initially refused to come. Some in Israel who said, I don't care if the Messiah is coming. I don't want to have any part of it. That was the time to refuse, like that second son who said, you know, I don't have any interest in going to work in your vineyard. Nope. But then later he repented and did go. 
So there might have been some. That would have been the time to refuse the invitation. Is when you first got the first invitation? No, I'm not going to come. But this second part of the invitation is to those who have already RSVP'd positively. Yes, I will be there. I'm going to work my whole schedule around everything so that I will definitely be there. And the king's servants here were now simply telling the guests who had previously accepted, you know, the invitation that he, the servants are saying, come. You said you'd come, now come and relish all the many glorious and free foods that the king has prepared for you in his beautifully decorated palace and enjoy all of the wonderful fellowship that you can have personally with the royal family. And these guests, they should have been very highly honored and thankful for such an invitation. I mean, it had been the talk of the towns. It had been the, the talk in the, in the synagogues. Everybody had their invitations, you know, some of them even framed them and said, did you get invited? <laughs> I did, you know. And, and so it was a talk for a long time. Israel had been excited about her Messiah coming for a long time. It was the talk of Israel that the Messiah would be coming one day. So it was almost inconceivable, therefore, that when the call came that all was ready, all you have to do now is come and enjoy, it's almost inconceivable that the guests were unwilling to come. Not that they were unable to come, they were unwilling to come. In verse 3, Jesus said they would not come. That reminds me of what he said when he lamented over Jerusalem. Remember when he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and, prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered my children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and what? Ye would not. You wouldn't come. You know, it's not that you couldn't. You wouldn't. This tells me, yes, the Bible teaches human responsibility, human free choice, not just completely divine election. You know, you're one of the elect and you have no choice in the matter. Both of those work together. They would not come. They were not only turning down a great honor here, but their refusal had with it a spurning attitude toward the king, didn't it? And, of course, toward the king's son. The already accepted invitation was not only a privilege, it was an obligation. But they all refused to do that which had been expected of them and which was a great privilege for them. You know, it's not a small thing to, to spurn the king's grace freely extended to them. That's not a small thing. And in the fact that this was the second of two calls, it was, and it was in the fact that it was extended by the king himself, the king, I mean, these people are his subjects, right? In the fact that it was the king himself who was extending this invitation, the condemnation of those who refused was increased. The proper time, as I said before, to have refused the invitation would have been at the time of the first calling. Their refusal now was the breaking of a promise because they had promised when they RSVP'd, yes, we'll be there, they had promised that they would, would be there. And so they were being unfaithful to their word. Their refusal was an insult to the king, and it was disrespectful of all his trouble. How would you like to have prepared a wedding, as I've done on two occasions, and, uh, and the, the banquet that follows, and send out invitations? People say, yeah, they'll be there, and then nobody shows up. That's an insult 
isn't it? You go to all that trouble and all that expense and everything, and then nobody shows up. So it was, it was an insult to the king and to the king's son. Now, a critical thing that we do need to stress here and we need to see in this parable is the, the willful refusal, the willful refusal of the guests to come. He didn't say they could not. He said they would not come. There were no excuses given. The people just would not come. It was not that they had any difficulty in understanding the invitation itself. The invitation was, you know, so-and-so requests the honor, the king so-and-so requests the honor of your attendance at the wedding banquet that he's going to have for his son, the prince. It wasn't, it was something even a child could understand. So the, the, their refusal was not that they had difficulty understanding the invitation, it was simply that they chose not to come. And this gives us the reason why people refuse the call of God on their lives, either for salvation or for service after salvation. It's a matter of the will. It's always a matter of the will, not the intellect. You know, if God calls you, it's simple. Come unto me. That's simple. So it's not a matter of the intellect that we can't understand or serve me. That's not difficult to understand. It's always a matter of the will. Furthermore, we find in the Greek that the words there at the end of verse 3, they would not come, are given in the imperfect tense, which tells us it was a continual rejection. And when we look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts, in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, we find that the message of the gospel by the apostles went out initially to none but the Jews, to the house of Israel. Even after Israel rejected Christ and crucified him, who did the apostles initially go to with the gospel message? The Jews, because that was God's plan, to the Jew first. And they stuck with that plan. But how did the nation respond to the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Because now the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, after the day of Pentecost, after the Lord's crucifixion and resurrection, then the Holy Spirit went to work through the apostles and the other messengers of the gospel. How did Israel respond? Well, she still would not come. And she continued to not come, even when God, the king, extended, you know, continued his great grace to bid her through his servants. And even though he continued, as we see here in this parable, to make every effort to make the banquet sound attractive to them. Come, you know, I've killed my, my, my uh, what is it, my ox and my fatlings. Everything is ready. In fact, all things are ready because I have even given you my only begotten son to make all things ready for you to accept now this invitation. Come unto the marriage. And again, that's a command, isn't it? It's an invitation. It's a beseeching. It's extended grace. But it's still a command. The king is saying, come. How did they respond? Well, the response is given to us in verses 5 and 6. Those who um, had give, been given this extended period of grace offered by the king, even after they willfully chose not to come, and he goes to them, you know, and says, please come, <laughs> what do they do? They still reject the call, and they do so through two types of refusal. Some refuse the invitation by, by way of indifference, and others refuse by way of infliction. 
they actually harm his servants. Now, the different, the indifferent crowd is mes <laughs> mentioned. The indifferent crowd is mentioned first in verse 5. What does it say? They made light of it and went their ways. See, after he said in verse 4, you know, tell them which are bidden, behold, I prepared my dinner, my ox and my fatlings are killed, all things are ready, come to the marriage, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. Now, to make light of in the Greek, it's a real long Greek word, but it means that they were careless of it. They just didn't care. They, they gave no heed to it at all. It was a terrible discourtesy and showed contempt again for the king and his son. They just preferred to do other things, you know, oh, big deal. It's a, a wedding invitation from the king, actually given as a command to honor his son. But I got other things to do. I know I've been given plenty of time to get ready for this, but, you know, I got, I got to tend to the things of the world, especially in the matter of making money. And that comes first before, you know, bothering with things about the kingdom of heaven. Now, this reminds us of the excuses that we heard when we studied another parable, which is very similar to this one. It's different, but it's very, very similar. It was called the parable of the great banquet. That was back in Luke 14. You might want to just flip back there and, or ahead there and look at that. But uh, do you remember that there were those who were invited to a great supper that was held by a certain man? Didn't say a king then, but by a certain man. And one man, you'll remember it now when I say all their excuses. One man said, well, I can't come to the great banquet because I just bought a piece of property and I have to go look at it. Well, who's going to buy property without first looking at it? not very intelligent. And then another man said, well, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go test them out. Would you buy a new car without testing it out first? And the, the third one, of course, he had the best excuse of all, didn't he? He said, well, I've got married. I just got married and I cannot come. Well, that's a bunch of baloney too. They were all lame excuses because they'd all been given a year, you know, advance notice so they could have worked their weddings and everything around, around that invitation. Well, in this parable, one guest um, was uh, concerned with his field, we're told, with laboring in order to increase his own wealth, and another guest was in like manner devoted to his business. He, he didn't want to be, he didn't want to interrupt his business to attend this wedding banquet lest he lose some of his profits in the interim. It was just what it was, was preoccupation with the pursuit of material things. And how many people in the world do that? You know, they're extended an invitation to the greatest banquet that will ever be held in all of the universe during the millennial kingdom, you know, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they give the most pathetic excuses, don't they? I'll never forget the time that I heard the excuse that the... The woman couldn't come to Bible study because that was when she had to milk her goats. And it wasn't anybody in this church, so don't go thinking, who would that be? It wasn't another, it was another life back in Fayetteville, but she had, I mean, she could have worked out her time schedule. Usually goats are milked like at 5 o'clock in the morning, and Bible study doesn't start till 10.30. <laughs> but the bottom line with all excuses, all the excuses that we read in both parables, this one and the one in Luke 14, is that the individuals went their ways, Matthew 22, 5 says. They went their ways, their ways, not God's way. The invitation was given as a command in both parables. 
a command which was really for their own good. I mean, there was a lot that they could enjoy in that banquet. A lot of sumptuous food and fellowship and, and joy and peace and fellowship with the royal family. And so it was all for their own good. And yet, what does this remind you? That they went their own ways? It reminds me of Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone our own way. We've gone astray and we've gone our own way. Their own matters were simply more important to them than an invitation from the king to honor his son. This group of people was not necessarily antagonistic toward the message of the servants. You find a lot of people like that. They're not, they don't get mad at you when you invite them to the wedding banquet, give them the gospel message. They simply have no hunger, no heart, and they don't feel a need for any urgency, no hurry to heed the message. Temporal matters, earthly matters, are just simply more important to them. But there was another group, look at verse 6, another group of pre-invited guests who were even worse than this indifferent group. Jesus said that a remnant, meaning those who were not included in the first group, the indifferent, you know, busy with my own life, leave me alone, rejectors, this remnant um, spoke of those like the religious rulers who met the king's servants with contempt and scorn. What did they do to his servants when they came to bid them again to the wedding feast? They took them, and that means to lay hold of them. It speaks of, of putting them even in stocks and bodily arrests and putting them in prison. And what do we know they did to the apostles? Just, just that sort of thing. And um, they took them and, and they treated them spitefully. They did what they could to insult them and to treat them shamefully. And then the climax came in that they even killed some of the servants. All that's in verse 6. What a strange way to respond to such a gracious mercy. If you got a wedding invitation to the king's, well, who was the uh, prince? over there in England, Prince Philip, is that his name? Charles, Prince Charles' wedding, you know, when he married Diana or even the second time. You know, how, would you respond by grabbing the, the postman who brought you the invitation <laughs> and killing him for bringing you the invitation? No, you'd be honored and privileged to go. Now, I don't know if you'd bother. I might not have bothered with all that because I don't care about that thing, but I should have given a better example. But anyway, um, it's just a crazy way to respond to such a gracious uh, invitation. But that's exactly what happened, exactly what happened in history. Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church in Acts 7, and then James, the apostle James in Acts 12, led the bloody list of martyrs in the early church. And Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, uh, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, was one of these fanatical, originally he was one of these fanatical remnant persecutors, who later, after he got saved on the road to Damascus, he later confessed to King Agrippa, Agrippa that he had been exceedingly mad toward the followers of Christ. He actually was over there with the coats when they stoned Stephen to death. So he's a perfect picture, originally, of one of these remnant who um, were violent. And they represent those of Israel who were actively hostile 
to the gospel, the religious rulers. So even with all the extra appeals to Israel that came through the apostles in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, appeals that even followed her rejection of Christ, yet she still refused to repent of her indifference and of her infliction toward God's messengers. So starting in Acts chapter 8, we find that the apostles, beginning with Philip, began to take the invitation first to the Samaritans. Philip took the gospel to the Samaritans. And what kind of response did he get? A great one. Wonderful. Samaritans were like, you know, half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. So Philip took the message to them, and they responded wondrously. Just read Acts chapter 8. And then they began to move out from Samaria and go where? To the rest of the world, to the Gentiles everywhere. So this was the answer of Israel's leaders to God, who through his servants bade, begged the nation the, the great privilege to do honor to his well-beloved son. In effect, this is their response. We defy the king. We refuse to have his son, the heir, reign over us. And to show you that we really mean what we say. We not only rejected him before, but we're going to continue to reject him after, afterwards, after his supposed resurrection. We're going to slay his servant, servants, the apostles, which they, they did. They persecuted and killed most of them. Now notice, unlike the parable of the wicked vine dressers, the one that preceded this parable, we now see that the king does not send them his son. Remember after the vine dressers killed the servants that came to collect the rent? He sent them his son, and then they killed his son. Now we see in this wedding banquet parable that they kill his servants, but he doesn't send them his son. Why? He already sent them his son, and they already rejected his son. So you see, uh, when you put all these parables together, which the Lord wants us to do, the son had already been sent, the son had already been rejected, and the son, the slain son, is now resurrected, and he is preparing for his great wedding celebration in his father's palace. Well, we're told in verse 7 that the king was wroth. Don't you like that? <laughs> he was wroth. He was angry over the way his servants had been mistreated and even killed. He understood that the rejection of his servants' invitation was really rejection of him and of his son. And he is holy. He is holy. And therefore, he does become angry at sin, especially willful sin. Now, you know, there are many people in the world that don't like the idea of a God who can get angry. They don't like reading about the wrath of an angry God. And they, they like the idea of a God of love, but not a God of anger. But if God did not get angry with sin and evil, then do you know what? He would not be holy. And if God is not holy, then there would be no sinless Savior. Because if God is not holy, that means God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are not holy. And there would not only not be any Savior, a sinless Savior, but there would be no such place as heaven, a place of holiness, a place without sin. But because God is holy, that means he is also a God of wrath. 
as well as a God of love and, and long-suffering patience and mercy and grace and kindness, etc. But the king now, and you can hardly blame him, the king was done with his patience. Israel had rejected and even killed his many Old Testament prophets. Uh, her leaders had refused to obey the message of John the Baptist to repent and prepare themselves for the coming Messiah. She, Israel, had rejected him, God the Father, God, by saying she would do his will and work in his vineyard, but then she did nothing, like that first son, except show her indifference and her violence toward his extended invitations to enjoy all that he had prepared for her. She had even then killed his son, but when she also now mistreated with disdain the Holy Spirit, who came to empower and fill his servants after the ascension of his son, Israel was done. That generation of Israel committed what we call the unpardonable sin because she rejected all three members of the triune Godhead, the witness of all three members. And there were no more witnesses to give to her. She rejected God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that final rejection was a national sin committed by Israel. She was ripe for judgment. And this was exactly what Stephen's indictment against Israel was. I told you he was the first martyr. As they were stoning him to death, he said in Acts 7.51, or maybe this was before they started stoning him, I'd have to go read it, but he said, ye do all, he's talking to Israel, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit. That's your problem, you guys. You're always resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. So the king, we're told in verse 7, meted out judgment to destroy those murderers and burn their cities. When continuous willful rejection and evil gets to the point where it has stirred up the anger, the wrath of God, watch out, watch out. You're in serious trouble. And Israel, just one generation after Jesus Christ, was in serious trouble. Well, we could say the same thing to America today. We are definitely busily stirring up the wrath of God. Watch out, America. So the king sent forth his armies, and his army in this case was the Romans. Under General Titus Vespasian, they, the Romans were the unconscious instruments of God's vengeance upon the Jews and Jerusalem in 70 A.D., just 40 years after they crucified Christ. God often uses the armies of this world to accomplish his judgments. You know, he's the one orchestrating all the pieces on the chessboard. He's the one who's in control. Did he not use the army of Assyria to punish the, the ten northern tribes of Israel? And did he not use Babylon, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, to punish the two southern tribes of Judah? They are called, actually, in Isaiah 13:5, the weapons of God's judgment. Sometimes God uses the wicked to destroy the wicked, and then he destroys the wicked agent that he used. Our times are absolutely no different. You know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the same as he's always been. Wicked nations to bring judgment and punishment upon other nations. And then, in turn, those wicked nations that he used... 
they are destroyed. Many of our wars, if you go down through the corridors of history, many of our wars were merely God bringing about his judgment upon the nations that have turned from him. That's kind of scary when we know there's some nations out there that would really like to harm us today and are bent on doing just that. You know, we live in very perilous times. They're saying now that Israel may have to strike Iran within the next two months. We may be getting very, very close to seeing a lot of changes. I'm, I hope we're getting very close to seeing the greatest change of all <laughs> changed in an instant. I'd like to just be out of here. But um, so many of our wars are God, you know, orchestrating all the, the pieces. And by the way, some of God's agents also are things, or some of his armies are things like famines and droughts and diseases pestilences, AIDS, H1N1, who knows, he can use anything, natural disasters, hurricanes, tsunamis, um, all sorts of things belong as part of his armies. So the Lord's prediction in verse 7 is a description of exactly what did happen to Israel in 70 AD, a fact that again demonstrates who he is. He's omniscient. He was foretelling history before it actually happened. And the greatest tragedy in all of this is that the Jews who committed the murderous atrocities against the king's servants did so for no better reason than that they did not want to be invited to the wonderful banquet held by the king for honoring his son and his son's wedding. Isn't that amazing? That's the whole reason that they are still suffering today. Because they wouldn't accept that invitation. A gracious, wonderful invitation for their own good. Well, in Matthew 22, 8, the king told his servants that the wedding day was ready, but those who had been bidden, those who had been invited, were not what? Worthy. Now, it's ironic that what made them unworthy to attend the banquet was the fact that they refused an invitation that was in no way based upon being worthy. When the invitation was originally sent out, it did not go to those who were worthy to receive it. It was extended merely on the basis of the king's gracious favor. If you got that invitation in the mail, it wasn't because you were worthy. It was just because of his grace that he decided to invite you. That which makes any person worthy of salvation, worthy of entering into God's kingdom is simply saying yes to his invitation to honor his son. So worthiness is based on that response alone, not on one's good works or anything else. None of us are worthy of the gospel message. But those who reject the invitation that it extends cancel out their opportunity for being worthy. Are you following me? So the rejectors of the invitation, the the rejector of the invitation decrees his own unworthiness by turning down the invitation. And this is exactly what Paul and Barnabas said to the Jews in Antioch, in Pisidia. In, uh, this is in Acts 13, 46. They said, it was necessary, this is a direct quote, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you you Jews. That's what Paul and Barnabas are saying. But seeing you put it from you 
and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That's Acts 13.46. And speaking of Gentiles, there is now a fourth invitation sent by the king. And by the way, if you count all these invitations, this is now the fourth invitation. There will be a fifth invitation. I don't have this in the notes, but one day in the future, in the tribulation period, there will be a fifth invitation. And you know five symbolizes the number of grace. Talk about grace. In the tribulation, God will again extend an invitation to Israel to come to the wedding banquet, be a guest in the millennial kingdom. You know, guest at the wedding of, the, of his son and the church. And many will finally respond positively to that invitation, which will come through the two mighty witnesses and through, you know, 144,000 Jewish evangelists. So that'll be the fifth. You know there had to be a five because of grace. But uh, so now in verse, um, where am I? Verse 9, there is another invitation that is sent out, the fourth one. The grace of God had been scornfully rejected by the Jews, so he sends out an invitation officially to the Gentiles. The king's servants, we are told, were to go into the highways. The city has been burnt, right? Jerusalem is gone. So this is after 70 AD. They're to go into the highways and gather together as many as they found both bad and good. The highways were built by who? Rome, right. The Romans built the highway system that made it possible for the gospel to be carried away from the city, away from Jerusalem. And the inference here is that the city has been forsaken. We just read in verse 7 that it had been burned and it represented Jerusalem. The highways were, were where many people of all descriptions could be seen and reached. Now, if you look at that other parable in Luke 14, it says that when they were sent out to the highways, they, were, they brought in many of the lame and the, the maimed and the halt and the blind and, you know, people like that because they would lay along the side of the highways. But the highways, you know, that's where you can just reach a whole multitude of people. And this instruction of the king to his servants in verse 9, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage, compares to what? The great commission that we read about in Matthew 28, 19, which is our commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Because of the transgression of the Jews, Paul wrote in Romans 11, 11, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting that historically, the king, God, still had servants at this point, even though many of them had been killed by the zealous Jewish rulers back in verse 6. And yet, he still has servants. He has Christian preachers and apostles and evangelists and missionaries that remained when all of the Pharisees and all of the scribes and all of the Sadducees and all of the elders of Israel were now extinct. You know, after 70 AD, there have never been any of those guys around. Yeah, they have rabbis over there now, but no Pharisees. There's no longer a sect of Pharisees and Sadducees and all these different sects of uh, what we found in Old Testament and early New Testament Judaism. So even though they, they were so intent on destroying all the king's servants, they're the ones 
who became extinct. You see, and their great city and their temple were in total ruin. Well, what was the response of both the down-and-outer Gentile sinners, the bad, and the up-and-inner Gentile socially acceptable, the good, you know, he says call both the bad and the good, to, to the gospel invitation of whosoever? What was the attitude of those who had previously not been bidden to the wedding banquet of the king's son because they were afar off? as it says in Ephesians 2.13. They were on the highways out of the way, as it says in Hebrews 5.2. What was their response now that they were extended this glorious outburst of grace as the servants of the king reached out to them? Well, the end of verse 10 says that the wedding was furnished with guests. And in the Greek, it's emphasized even more. It says the wedding was filled to overflowing with guests. Isn't that great? Great news. Many of the down and outers, even the bad and the good, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, responded positively. And the outcome was that the king was happy. And his son, he was happy because his son was honored. And the son was happy because his father was honored. He hadn't gone to all that trouble for nothing. And the guests who did respond positively, were very happy just because they were so honored and privileged to be there at all. Uh, they were more grateful, if you think about it, they were more grateful than the first invite of guests might have been if they had come. I mean, this, this whole occasion became much more famous than it otherwise would have. Charles Spurgeon points out this, this truth. If the feast had gone on as usual. It would have simply been one among many such ceremonies. Lots of kings in history had banquets for their son's weddings. But this royal banquet was unique because to gather in poor folks off of the, uh, the streets, you know, the outcasts and beggars, and to go so far as to bring in strangers who did not even know the king and, the, and his son previously, and to bring both bad and good to the wedding of the crown prince. Now that was something new under the sun. And everybody talked about it. You know what? In fact, there was a book written about it, a book that continues to be on the bestsellers list. And there were songs written about it, many, many songs that honored the king for his graciousness. When the Lord God saved you and I, and I hope everyone in here is saved, if not, oh my goodness, you need to say yes to the invitation today, <laughs> today. But when he saved us by his marvelous grace, it was no common event. When he brought sinners to himself and he washed us and he clothed us in his robes of righteousness and he fed us at his table, it was a wonder to be talked about throughout all of eternity. That which originally looked like it might dishonor and defame the king, you know, nobody's showing up for the, the banquet, the wedding and the banquet he had for his son, it looked initially like he'd be dishonored, turned out to be even his, to his greater honor, didn't it? Unbelievers may despise him, and they may spit in the face of his extended invitation to sup with him and his son. But unbelievers do not have the last word. 
Their willful rejection and their hatred is overcome by God's grace. His grace always overcomes. He always takes that which men intend for evil, and he turns it out for his own ultimate good and glory. He's the expert at the Genesis 50-20 principle. Well, there's one more scene, and some say this last scene is even another parable. They give it a title of the parable of the man without a wedding garment, but it is not another parable. And I'll tell you the reason I say that is because of the first, or verse 12. Look at what it says, and when, let's see, is that verse 12? No, verse 11, where it says, and when the king came in to see the guests, that right there tells us, It's not a separate parable. It's a continuation of the previous parable. So let's look at these last few verses, 11 to 14. It says, And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he, the man, was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Well, the king would naturally visit the banquet hall to welcome the guests who had come and to rejoice with them. You know, he he being the king would wait until all were there, that everybody was there and everybody was seated, and then he would make his grand entrance. And that was the custom. For him to have arrived earlier would have been, you know, something that would take away from his honor and dignity. The king always came after everybody was there and seated. So when the king entered the palace banquet hall, he immediately, first thing his eyes went to, was this man who did not have on the proper wedding attire. Now, I have to explain here that it was another custom in the East that when kings or persons of great status had a large ceremony like this or a large feast of this manner, they would provide, I like this, they would provide the costly outfits for their guests to wear. Can't you see the women in these beautiful gowns, you know? They would actually provide the the, um, costume or the outfit for them to wear. They might have had a color theme, you know, everybody's going to wear white, so I want everybody to, so I'm going to provide them with the garments. And the kings were so wealthy, you know. Or they might have had, uh, they just had some kind of uh, a decorating theme, you know, they wanted everybody to be dressed Victorian or whatever it might be. And so they would provide the the costume, (laughs) I say costume because I think, I can't help, I have to take the time to tell you this, but when my brother got married, my brother had never been married, and finally he turned 54 and he decided he was going to get married. So, it was kind of fun. Went to his wedding, which was out in Roswell, New Mexico. Roswell is where they have all the aliens, you know, they say the aliens landed there. It's a really weird place, but... Um, and it was on a garlic farm. His wedding was on a garlic farm. I didn't know what to expect. I'd never met his bride-to-be or anything, and... um, we got there, and it was on this garlic farm. I mean, it really smelled, but it was um, really very rustic. I mean, there was like an old bathtub in the front yard of this old shack of a house, and they decorated the bathtub with artificial flowers. And um, But it was a really strange wedding. He married a belly dancer. And she, he is her fourth husband. 
And um, she had bell, bell, her, her bridesmaids were all dressed as belly dancers. They were all belly dancers. And um, somehow or another, she wanted to, to decorate. The whole ceremony was in the front yard of this little garlic farm shack. But she wanted to decorate because she really likes Barbie dolls. And she really likes Midsummer Night's Dream, which is all about fairies. And she was really into this belly dancing thing. So she decorated with bar you'd have to be there to believe. She decorated with Barbie dolls that were dressed like fairies. They all had wings on them. Midsummer Night's Dream. But they were also they were also dressed like belly dancers. They were belly dancing Barbie dolls with wings. It was really weird. And when, when, and when the bridesmaids came down the, well, around the path, past the bathtub, they, they were doing belly dance. You know, instead of coming up the aisle, they were doing a belly dance. And my husband was the best man. And uh, he was in a suit. And I, I had... I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea what to expect. So I had gone to a lot of trouble to buy an outfit. Anyway, I'll get to that in a minute. But my husband was to take the ring out of this little boy, the ring bear, who had a big dragon puppet. And my husband had to stick his hand down the dragon puppet to get the ring out to give to my brother. My brother was just like, what's going on? I mean, he was just out of it. He's kind of different anyway, but it was really weird. And this, th these people were like my age, but they were still into the hippie movement. You know, they were, they were old hippies is what they were. And they were all into new age. And then I went into the little house and they had this big Nazi flag on the, I mean, it was just freaky. But when I got there, they had a, this is the reason I'm giving you the story, because they had a wedding garment that they wanted. I was the only relative there from my brother's side of the family, except our son did come in his Navy uniform. He really stuck out like a sore thumb, <laughs> his white Navy uniform. And, anyway, um, these people were belly, dance, belly dancer, new age neo-Nazis, but they had this outfit they wanted me to wear. I'd gone to all the trouble to buy this pretty dress, and they didn't want me to wear it. They had a wedding garment for me to wear. And fortunately, it was not a belly dancing outfit. <laughs> it covered me pretty well. But anyway, that's what the kings would do. <laughs> not that they were kings, but they would provide the wedding garments. <laughs> uh, one day I'll give you my testimony. I have a really weird family. <clears throat> but, um, and so, you know, for this man who didn't have the right wedding garment on, uh, he didn't have any excuse because it, he couldn't say I couldn't afford to buy the wedding garment because it was provided graciously and freely by the king. Well, the wedding garment symbolizes in gospel terms the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61.10 says, He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. And to not be wearing the garment is to be like those who think that they can get into heaven by their own righteousnesses. They scorn the idea of putting on Christ. So rejection of the wedding garment indicated the man's disregard toward the giver of the feast, and it showed that he had wanted to enjoy all the blessings of the feast, but he wanted to do it his way, 
not God's way. He didn't bother to prepare himself properly with the garment that the king provided for all of his guests. Maybe he thought that the king would just be honored to have him there at all. You know, the, the king would say, oh, I'm so glad to have you here. Maybe this man thought that his garment was much more decorative and much more beautiful and colorful than the simple white garment that everyone else was wearing. And maybe he thought, well, I want to stand out. And he did. He was successful in that because immediately the king's eyes went straight to him. But um, he assumed wrong if those were some of his reasons for not being properly attired. Yet when the king stood before this intruder and gave him a chance to repent and to throw himself on the king's mercy, notice that the king even called him friend, right? What did the man do? He did nothing. He didn't repent. He didn't beg for forgiveness. He just stood there, kind of like the religious rulers who were, even right now in our story, standing before Jesus, totally speechless. He could not excuse himself for his lack of proper clothing because he had worn his own garment purposely. And I know you don't see that, again, in the English, but that does come out in two different words that are used in the Greek for the same word, not where it says in verse 11, he had not on the garment, the wedding garment. That just means he didn't have it on. It's one Greek word, O-U. But in the next verse, 12, when the king says, how camest thou in hither not having on a wedding garment, that's a different Greek word. It's M-E-me, and it means that he willfully did not have on the wedding garment. So again, this is a willful rejection of putting on the proper wedding garment. So he had no excuse for what he had done, done, and he didn't apologize. He just stood there frozen in place. And so this is how all unrepentant sinners will be one day as they stand before Christ at the judgment seat, the great white throne judgment. They will have no clever excuses um, for having, you know, they might have had a lot of excuses in this life. Like, I got a field and I got a business and I, got, I just got married and I've got this and that to do. They'll have a lot of excuses down here. But when they stand before Christ one day at the great white throne judgment, their, every mouth is going to be stopped. They will be speechless just like this man. They will have no excuses. And just like this man, they will be sentenced. He was, he was to be bound and taken away from the light and the joy of the great feast and cast into the darkness outside where there was and where there will be for all of eternity nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth. If men, women, young people die without the garment of a Christ-covered life, then they can never, ever participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. For all who die without Christ as their covering for sin, there is the doom of blackness of darkness forever. And that is the truth. That is the frightening truth. Well, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to evangelize, and I'm going to close with this. He used to evangelize by, by using this question as he spoke to people as he go out in the world. He says, suppose you would die tonight and appear before God in heaven, and God would ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say to him? And he found after years of doing this that basically there were three responses he would hear from people. Most people would immediately cite 
some of their good works. They say, well, you know, I went to church for many, many years, or I did this, or I did that, and, you know, really, I'm not that bad of a person because I've never murdered anyone. Have you ever heard that? Well, you know, people would give that. And then, of course, he would answer by pointing out that the Bible says we have all fallen short of God's moral standard embodied in the law. No one is good enough to be declared righteous by their own works. Then a second group of people would answer his question by saying, I don't know what I would say to God. I guess I wouldn't have anything to say because I really never believed in a God, and so I never expect to stand before him one day. But the third group of people would give him the only acceptable answer, which is, uh, they would say to God, I have absolutely no right at all, as far as I myself am concerned, to stand before you in your heaven. But your son, Jesus, died for my sins and has given me the covering of his own righteousness in which I alone dare to even stand here before you. I come at your invitation and in the clothing that you provided me through Jesus, your son. And will God reject the person who answers the question in that manner? Absolutely not. So, question, have you come to him that way? Make sure, make sure that you have the right wedding garment on. Make sure that you are covered with the righteous robes that only come to us and are available to us freely through Jesus Christ.